The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Rob Garfield, MD, a psychotherapist and clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's been recognized by Philadelphia Magazine as both one of the city's top docs and best therapists. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Garfield. Great to be here. Great to have you here, and we're going to be talking about your new book, Breaking the Mail Code, Unlocking the Power of Friendship. Um, so I, I guess we're going to begin with the, my first question is, what is the mail co- code? Uh, because obviously that's what the book is about. And um, why do we need to break the mail code? Okay. Well, when I talk about mail code, I'm talking about a set of social guidelines that defines how men are supposed to act and feel. Um, It emphasizes stoicism, silence, physical strength. When you look at it, it's really been in force in this country and Europe for the last 200 years, and it really hasn't changed much. You know, it's associated with a kind of rigid set of behaviors that include emotional restraint, withholding personal information, competition, etc. And... For quite a long time, following the male code has actually been an advantage for men. Okay, it's provided them with power, prestige, um, and and it's also been reinforced in a sense by what I call a carrot and a stick model. That is, if you follow these guidelines, it opens doors for you, for jobs, for relationships, etc. In the past. And if you don't follow it, you know, there's a subject, you're subject to consequences, being made fun of, bullying on the playground, gay beatings. Whenever um, men don't follow these sort of set of rules, they're shamed. And the purpose of the book is... Yeah, I I just want to interrupt you for a minute. So in other words, in the past, because now you're saying things have evolved and changed, uh, that maybe some of these characteristics don't work quite as well in our society Today, but in the past, they helped. Didn't they help men maintain control, uh, maintainment control of their families, jobs? It's all about right. power, or it has been all about power. It has been a lot about power, and it's also been about a social construction as well. Um, in the middle 1800s, um, you know, the the social code moved in the direction of what we called separate spheres. There were things that men did in places they did them. Okay, men were providers and protectors, and they worked more in a public domain. And the thought at the time was, well, this would be a way of finding roles for men and women that fit. Okay, 
that women worked in, in the home front. They worked in the private domain. They worked with children. They worked with domestic kinds of issues. And they were also, and probably more as, as important, certainly, in terms of being in charge of the emotional networking that happened within the family and outside of the family as well. And these sort of habits that fit what the social expectations were worked to an extent. But, you know, behind this, there was still the pushing, you know, on the part of women for more equality. You can see the work of that. And, uh, you know, that's sort of been ignored, you know, by men. Um, so that, you know, the idea of a, an open, equal society has really not been, it really hasn't happened in that way. But w- it wouldn't have Over been... the last 40 years... You but know, what about, see, Doctor, you're talking about the 1800s. Um, well, and, and into men the were 1900s. Out in, in the what? Into the 1900s. Into the 1900s. Men were out in the, and I'm putting it in quotations, but out in the real world, so that women were not allowed to be in that world, so exactly. the men protected them. So there was a, you know, women were being protected. Um, and I, I suppose that that, particular juncture that was considered a plus or a positive um, well that's what that's what was being sold yeah that was <laughs> yeah okay that's what was being sold at the time and um you know um you know women have had a long road to hoe here you know when you take a look at the at what they have achieved over the last hundred years it's really been you know by dint of hard work um pressing for voting rights, pressing for education, all these, you know, kinds of things. And and continuing to press even into the beginning of the 21st century for equal kinds of rights. So a lot of a lot of the changes I think over the last 40 years have been driven by I think the the deeper purposes of feminism which is really to um establish equality, really. Um, which is what everybody agrees we should be having, but um, you know, as genders haven't really actually pushed as hard as they need. But some of the changes over the last 40 years have really been tipping the balance: um, sexual revolution, the increases in divorce that have gone on, changing economic circumstances that are requiring families to have two two breadwinners. Um, in these situations, and uh, increased number of step families, and you can see a lot of social changes that have been going on that no longer actually benefit having a male code the way that it was before. Simply, the definition of masculinity isn't working for men as it has in the past, and they're really having to find ways to expand the definition of what it means to be a successful male. And that's what the book is really aimed at—the breaking of the male code. It's not that emotional restraint or any of these characteristics individually is bad. They're actually quite fine and necessary in and of themselves. But when they're being applied in a way that's rigid and exclusive and doesn't allow for a kind of range of expressiveness that absolutely exists in men and women, then it actually becomes detrimental. It becomes detrimental to health, certainly to men's health, and certainly to their relationships. I mean, we can see this in just the health data that comes out when men are disconnected and the data that's coming out right now about divorces that, you know, two out of every three are initiated by women now with a complaint 
that their men aren't just connecting emotionally with them. So male code has um, it's really lost its mojo, and um, we're needing to redefine what successful masculinity is today. That's so if we're going to redefine what it is, because um, it isn't working, and uh, so you have the research to prove it, obviously, with with divorces and women initiating divorces. What, I mean, and this is what your book is about, that you kind of give a step-by-step guide as to how, what men <clears throat> need to do in terms of deepening their relationships. They have to, really have to kind of do a 180, don't they, in terms of how they view themselves in relationship to other men as well as to women and how they connect yeah. to other men has right. to it, yeah has to be different at, just as it has to be different in terms of how they connect to women right and and you know from personal experience and from having worked with men for the last forty years and more intensively in groups we call our groups friendship labs um, it it's it's clear that how did you get men to come to a friendship lab because I think that's <laughs> great. <laughs> Well, for two, it, we, it happens in, in two ways. First of all, men have friendships, but the research and our research has focused a lot on emotional intimacy in men's friendships. Men are really wanting more from their friendships than they've actually had. They really matter to them. You know, they will do anything for their guy friends, but they complain privately that these relationships aren't really, they're not as deep as they need to be. They need to be able to talk about things and they're not doing that. So that's, I mean, so some of this is coming from men themselves. Uh, the second is coming from the women in their lives who, when because I, I do couples therapy, a lot of these referrals to our groups come from men who are really struggling in their relationships, and they're finding that as committed as they feel they are, you know, they're, they can be good protectors and providers and these kinds of things, that they're, that they're missing skill sets that are allowing them to actually have good relationships and their wives are our partners are more vocal these days about that so you know there's a lot of i would like to have closer relationships and at the same time i'm going to lose what i have if i don't or is so, it they're saying i would like to have a different relationship because i know it, it's just not working. It, you know, my relationship with my partner, my spouse, my girlfriend isn't my good, or I don't have the connection I want to, to my male friends. So they know there's a problem, I, I guess is what you're saying. But then in your book you say what well, all starts really back to the mothering that we give to our sons. Um, and maybe talk about that a little bit, because it just doesn't begin when they, you know, just get married or have a... A, uh, a long-term relationship, it starts way back. Men get right. nurtured differently. Um, right. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's an excellent point. Um, you mentioned the word mo- mothering. I would call it parenting because I think um, I just want to, um, you know, take a little bit off mothers here um, because I think mothers have been in a bind since they have been really, uh, you know, sort of uh, expected to provide the main kind of um, nurturing. And, um, and and I think that, that there's been a double bind with that. Mothers are perfectly fine in that way. But the, the bind has been really about male code. What we expect we're supposed to provide in terms of nurturing for our boys. And it's different. And, you know, a lot of the problems that boys have in terms of 
violence and aggressiveness is not really so much about testosterone. It's not about the inherent nature of boys. A lot of it has to do with just what you were saying. It's about early nurturing. And do we touch boys? Do we coo with them? Do we uh, uh, allow them to cry? You know, And there really are differences there. And those differences are really important because it's precisely there that boys learn how to self-soothe and how to control themselves. So that's one thing. Right, the so we have different area, of course, expectations is, the second for the area, boys. Of course, is, I'm sorry, go ahead. We have different expectations for boys' behavior, for little boys' behavior as opposed to little girls' behavior. Yes. Okay. And, we do. Yeah. And then, but I think one of the other things that you say, which I thought was interesting, because you say it's not all related to testosterone, this kind of aggressive behavior, but that by actually treating boys differently, there are actually changes that happen in the brain that, cause them to be less um, connected, communicate, you know, be able to communicate or, uh, you know, be able to have intimate relationships? I mean, there's actual changes that go on in the, what, little baby or the little... Well, well, of, well of course. I mean, the brain and, I mean, nature and nurture are inextricably connected. Uh-huh. So if your pathways in the brain that actually allow you to experience um, comfort when you cry, you know, you know that that's going to go on. You know, you have some sense that there's a solution to this problem. If not, then you're going to have to develop other kinds of pathways to deal with things, you know, which, you know, as, as clinicians, you know, we, we know translate into kinds of defenses that people carry around in them. You know, you, you, you use the behaviors that you can actually use, that your brain allows you to use in situations. So if, you know, if that happens to be, um, I'm not allowed to cry, I'm not allowed to feel comforted, but what I can do is um, do something physical or I can, um, you know, uh, fight back at somebody or if I can pretend I don't care, that's what I'm going to do. And this is kind of what we see. And and those sort of... Uh, Brain-trained responses, you know, then become part of boy code. This okay. is how boys so let's are. fast forward to the to the patients or the clients that you have in your office who come in, you know, with presenting problems that have to do with intimacy and, and communication and commitment. Uh, the four C's, I think, that you call them. How? Uh, give us some, you know, specific examples. You know, put a face on it. I guess of, of different examples of, of clients who uh, are, have a problem with these issues, and then what do you do? How do you help them? Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the things that's been really helpful um, that I have started doing and um, really sort of generated my interest in men's friendships is beginning to see the power of um, working with other men in groups as part of a, you know, um, a more effective change process for men. Um, it's one thing for them to see me individually. It's another thing for them to see me in the context of a group of other men. Um, and um, because the social expectations are so powerful. Here's an example. Um, one fellow came to us um, because he'd been having problems in his marriage and um, I, he was referred, a lot of these patients are referred, sometimes I refer out of my own practice into the group. Um, 
because um, his wife was just really fed up with him, and he had been starting to withdraw from the marriage. He had two young kids, and um, he came to the group, and he, it was a hard sell to get him to come because he just didn't want to expose. I mean, he was very successful professionally, but he didn't want to expose that he had problems with his marriage. You're not supposed to do that. You know, it's a, a sign of weakness. So he came in, and he heard other guys in the group talking about problems that they were having with their wives. And he was totally um, excited about this. You know, So when his turn came around, he said, Wow, am I relieved to hear that you guys have problems with your marriage too. What am I going to do with this woman, he says, in his first... You know, and he talked about... Um, you know, what had, what had happened. And one of the guys in the group said, well, the first thing you're going to need to do is to take a look at why you've been acting so disrespectfully to her. And <laughs> it, it totally stopped him. Now, on one hand, he was able to really feel good that other guys had problems too. But the other thing that was totally a shock to him was that somebody actually called upon him to look at his own role not just to complain about what was going on with his wife, but who was actually listening to what he was doing with her. You know, he would go out, he wouldn't tell her when he was coming home. You know, um, he said he was going to do certain things. He didn't follow through. And, um, you know, of course, who wouldn't be mad at a guy like this? But um, instead of getting the party line, oh, yeah, you know, women, they're just like that, he got really called upon by one of the guys in the group to take responsibility for himself. And the look on his face was really telling. First, he was in shock, and second, he was relieved. And he said, wow, he said, that's the first time somebody actually has called me on this. this, Would you say that this happens often? Because, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about women who really do have a completely opposite response, let's say if they are having a problem in their marriage, the first thing they do is call their girlfriend, and they want to hear what she has to say. And she can criticize and say, well, you know, whatever she has to say, then she calls her mother and her sister, and and has no problem sharing all of this stuff. And by the the time she's finished with these calls, she's relieved, she's vented, and she's probably got six different ideas about how to handle handle the thing better. Men don't have that at all. They, They get cut off at the pass. I have a problem. I'm supposed to take care of that myself. If I'm not taking care of it myself, which I'm not, um, then it's a you know it's a source of shame and humiliation, and nothing happens. This is a real problem. Um, from the work we did with the groups, I started thinking, you know, there are relationships out there that men have that they really care about with other men but they don't use these relationships. They're very limited. What would happen if we actually started encouraging the men to start talking to their guy friends? They do great in the groups, and they do develop friendships of a kind in the groups, but they have people that they've known for years that they just don't talk about these things. What would happen? What if we said, you know, part of the goal here is to take these skills not just home to your family or to your couple's therapy, but to take these to your friendships and see what happens if you put your toe in the water and bring something up with a guy that you know for years. And it's been dramatic with these guys. I mean, that was part of my incentive to write the book 
because I think that there's a lot of potential in men's friendships, and they're also talking about it. When they come into the groups, they say, well, you can't talk to guys out there. So we always say, well, how many of you have actually called up a friend and said, you know, I need to get together and talk with you about it? Nobody raises their hands. So this is male code. I mean, this is following the dictates of this. Well, I so mean, this break- is great work. I think it's a daunting task. <laughs> but, I, 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 you know, when you talk about a guy calling or a man calling up and telling his friend, you know, he's upset or depressed about his relationship with his wife or his kids or he feels like he's been a failure, you know, you don't hear that very often. I mean, are you right. telling him also because you're talking about different relationships, like he's going out and playing golf with his buddy? Is that when he... Golf is a great place. Yeah. You know, it's a long, you know, um, set of holes out there. And a lot of the times, and we, we emphasize that these conversations are, these are not the kind of conversations you have in groups of six or eight. Um, these are not the kind of conversations, if you're a young guy, that you have with your buddies at a bar where there's a group. These are the conversations you have with someone who you actually think might be a friend, someone you think you could trust, that you call up to go for a walk or you call up to go for coffee and that you make the time to do that, something that most women will just do. You know, they, they have, you know, they've developed more of an instinct for that. I say develop it. It's not, <laughs> this is not genetic. Okay. Um, this is something that people, you know, learn to do and they've yeah. seen it modeled. And guys can do and that. And you get reward. Women get rewarded for well, it. Well, this, this is the thing exactly, Catherine. I mean, um, when, when men start actually to do this, it's an investment. But, you know, having seen it work, it's an investment that pays back so quickly. And, you know, and then it becomes sort of the lattice, a building of a lattice of a, of a kind of a resource that men really need. And they see it coming back to them with their children, they see it coming back to them in the office. Um, another guy that we talked to, I just talked to recently, um, you know, is c- coming out of a bad stretch, you know, of depression where he was just not available to his kids for almost 10 years. And um, he's starting to have conversations with his 22-year-old daughter now. And it's very emotional and very tearful, but definitely gratifying for both because they're really starting to reconnect. Um, and doesn't and this, this also this by by doing this um, kind of embarking on this journey? I guess the, these men um, it also helps. I would assume their physical health because you know not talking and holding things in and repressing and denying and all of those things and not seeking out any kind of uh, help from other males um, or or women. Um, it, it would seem to me it really has a negative impact on your overall health, physical health. It has a huge negative impact, and there's probably more research on um, men and friendships and health um, than anything that I write about in the book from a health point of view. Um, men make 134 million fewer doctor's appointments per year in our, in our, um, in our country than women do. And, you know, the results of this, um, undiagnosed illness, more complications from the illness, earlier deaths, um, add on more accidents, you know, because of um, high-risk behavior. Now, the whole business of being independent and acting physically tough has a huge, huge health toll for men as well. We had a guy um, 
in our group who um, came to the group one night. This was last year. I think I wrote about this. Um, and um, he was complaining that he'd been having irregular heartbeats um, for the last three days. And the, the guys in the group were just horrified. There are a couple of physicians in this group. And they said, well, so, you know, what have you done? And he said, well, my wife, who happened to be a family practice doctor, had been beside herself telling him to go to the hospital and get this checked out, which he did not do. And the guys were just went nuts. And they um, said, okay, the group is just about over. We are going to drive you to the emergency room. You are going to get checked out there. So um, they did. And um, fortunately, he hadn't had a heart attack. He spent the night there. Um, and he called the next morning back when he was home, and he said, um, I want to thank you um, and thank the guys as well. And he said, um, I apologize to my wife. And I said, did you? And he said, yes. He said, I will not do this again. He said, I just have been stupid because I thought I should be able to handle it um, myself. And um, his wife called us later and said, um, if you can keep him to this promise, she said, I'm baking you guys chocolate chip cookies. I'm (laughs) going to send these to the meeting. Because that's what women do. (laughs) They do. But, I mean, you know, you just get the big picture of the frustration. I've got to handle it myself. Um, A group of other men, you know, who are saying, we know this. This is baloney. You can't do this. You've got to get this taken care of. And by the way, why aren't you listening to your wife? She's a doctor. She knows about this stuff. So, well, I mean, well because it's not rational, up. it's emotional, as you obviously, as we've been discussing. We only have a few minutes left, and I have a lot more questions to ask you. But so I just want you to comment, just like it, mm-hmm. on the, it's in Chapter 4, The Seasons of a Man's Friendship, because I thought that was like a really significant chapter, because it's different at each sort of um, developmental stage for men in terms of how they approach their relationships with other men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, friendship really is an important issue throughout the life cycle. And, you know, as a, as a clinician, you know, you know that there are different challenges at different stages. You know, from, you know, when you're a young man or a young person, family life, launching these kinds of things. So every time there's a developmental challenge that is difficult, we just don't know, we haven't been there before, Um, how do we deal with it? And so I thought it was important to talk about the role of friendships. One of the most vulnerable times for men is around the time when they, that marriage family time comes. And this is the time you see that the number of friends that men have, have had and the amount of time they spend drops off. Well, the reasons are kind of obvious during that time. You know, their energies is going. But it's also the time where they most need the support. And so we're really big on pushing the guys to really maintain whatever they can in terms of these connections because these are so important. And a lot of the times it's the beginning of a really long period of isolation for men when they get so involved and they're just over their heads. Um, you know, during this period of time. So, and then, um, of course, at the next point, it brings that we only have about a minute and a half left, unfortunately. So I wanted uh, listeners 
buy the book, Breaking the Male Code, Unlocking the Power of Friendship, but just one... And so you're talking about this isolation that begins to occur when men get married, and you bring it up to middle age, and I guess that's part of the reasons for divorce. You talk about that in your 40s and 50s. Um, Well, right. At this point in time, and I think some of it is generational in the sense of um, right now the the launchers are are mostly the boomers. Um, And boomers are you know, have a problem um, because of prior expectations from a generation. But this is where the highest divorce rate in the country right now is between ages 50 and 70. And men are getting married then, you know, second times, so they're moving into step families as well. So this is really, and, and this is a time when, um, you know, men are really looking for other men. A lot of the times they're more open during that age range to actually talking than they because they're a little less busy. But well, the stakes they are really high, and I think that's what you, you know, at each stage high. of the game, yep. and, and that's what you exactly. point out in the book. So right. Breaking the Male Code, Unlocking the Power of Friendship, and that's Dr. Rob Garfield, MD. Um, we do have to say goodbye. We can okay. buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, but uh, Dr. Uh, Garfield, what uh, website should we go to for more information? Um, www dot robgarfield.com and think Father's Day. This is a really a perfect good time. gift. Yeah, this is a really good time. Guy could buy it for himself. <laughs> or, but I don't think it's just for fathers. How about for your No, son? it isn't. No, I'm saying he could buy it for himself or I think that this is actually great for women. The women that have read the book so far have said that they've actually learned a lot uh, from it and about the men that they're working with or uh, who are in their lives and so I, I think, yeah, that's, that's a good thing to think about. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's a lot of insight that women can gain from reading the book, too. So it's a family book. <laughs> yes, a family. it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Thanks so much for being on the well, show Well, thank you morning. for your questions and the, and the, and the, and the very in, interesting discussion. It was a great discussion. Um, Dr. Rob Garfield, Breaking the Mail Code, Unlocking the Power of Friendship. We have to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And uh, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are broadcasting from the Phoenix studios at voiceamerica.com. Variety Channel, Going Global with Gas Man is the show that you are listening to. And joining me today is Sean Morley from the WWE, otherwise known as Val Venus, the big Val Boski. Hello, ladies. <laughs> and he's also got a third identification as well. He Absolutely. Is Captain Cannabis. Live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time on the voiceamerica.com Variety Channel. Going global with gas. Man. How the hell do they know that I got gas? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Blair London. She is a Minnesota-based author. Uh, she's written several award-winning books, and uh, the book that we're going to be talking about today is Lure to Death, the Social Media Serial Killer. That's her latest book. Um, with social media, apparently cyber-bullying obviously has become prevalent, and daily there are reports in the news about cyber-bullying and attempts to prevent it. Yet despite the best efforts of parents, educators, and law enforcement, cyber-bullying continues, and it's even become more sophisticated. So uh, is there any way to prevent it? What are, what are some of the new tactics that cyber-bullies are adopting? That's what we're going to be talking about in the next half hour. So, Blair, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning. Great to have you. Okay, so you uh, lure to death the social media serial killer. Um, why don't you describe, first of all, uh, the book in terms of what you, how you decided to, I mean, what was your interest in, how did you come up with the, the title, Lure to Death, the Social Media Serial Killer? Well, um, first of all, the book is about, you know, um, Lurked to death, the social media sailor killer. The main character is Sandy Bean, and he's uh, a string bean, or so he's named in high school, and he's bullied by fellow classmates. And then he's on to discovering something ingenious that could make a million. But his classmates destroy his lab, and then he tried to experiment at home, and something goes wrong. A fire occurs, and his parents die in the fire, and he blames this on his classmates. So then a reunion is coming up, and so he plots to get revenge. And when I was writing this, you know, it brought back memories of individuals I had known in high school that were bullied, that were considered the nerd, and actually a couple of them were, you know, very much into chemistry. So, and uh, then, you know, you hear so much, so it's kind of a combination of things. You hear a lot about cyberbullying. And so, uh, you know, in the book, Sandy Bean, he... Uh, who later calls himself Conan in the book, he lures his classmates through social media. So cyberbullying, let's talk about it. Let's give, Maybe you can give us a definition of how, what cyberbullying is today. And it is on the rise, unfortunately, and it's, it's very scary. I mean, uh, there are obvious, there are even, you know, we read about suicides attributed to cyberbullying. Um, so... What is cyberbullying? Well, I think unlike what our parents used to tell us, that sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. That was when they would say them to you to your face, you know? Um, Today, when you put them out on social media, they're there forever. And even though you think you erase things, it's still out there in cyberspace, you know, and somebody will find it. And so when when, uh, different... You know, comments get made or somebody picks or bullies somebody online, it kind of spreads, you know, and a lot of people chime in and, you know, it keeps going on and on to the point where, yeah, it does drive some people, especially it seems like in younger people, can drive them to suicide. 
And I so think the, it's more you know, the impact, like you say, sticks and stones can uh, uh, words will not break you can break your bones, break but words will never hurt me. But words really do hurt, especially when they're on the net. I'm thinking, you know, uh, you know, on a Facebook page, and somebody may say something that maybe isn't really, really overwhelmingly nasty, but if it gets repeated over and over, and you're vulnerable and you are aware that so many people are reading and seeing something that was said about you that was negative, that the impact is so great. I mean, even if what they're saying isn't horrific, it can have horrific consequences. Right, and I think people, one thing they have to remember is you should never put anything on social media that you wouldn't announce to a whole room of strangers. Because, well, uh, I, yeah, so I, I have people. another piece to add to that. Somebody said to me once, and maybe it was an attorney, don't put anything on, in uh, social media that you wouldn't want to have and be read it to, in a court of law. So I do <laughs> think of that. That's <laughs> taking it one step won further. some award for something good, you know, well, then you would probably like everybody to know, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, some things, and inventing about other people is bad. Um, you know, because it also makes you up for a target. If everything gets to you, you know, and you're venting about somebody, well, it can, you know, set you up. For instance, a young girl who was venting about an old boyfriend and how he, you know, did something wrong and she hates him and all this stuff. Well, then somebody else can come along through social media and pretend to be this nice, innocent person, or maybe they're not. And people lie on social media too. That's another thing. <laughs> so how can you pre- how can you present uh, prevent it? I mean, I, it seems to me it's almost uh, impossible because there's a certain amount of anonymity. So you have people who are cowards, people who this is just a perfect place for them to to vent, you know, nasty bad stuff about other people. And it, you know, so I'm not surprised it's on the rise. And I, I really don't see, and, and perhaps in your experience, how do you change this? How can you it's not a you know good road that we're going down. Well, one thing too is you know like okay myself I have a you know I have a um, social media sites that I set up you know as Blair London the author, but I also have a personal site which is for my friends and my family, and you know my friends and my family I don't include all my great nieces and nephews and stuff like that. You know, it's my siblings and their spouses and more people my own age and some of the older (laughs) nieces and nephews. But, um, you know, people, you look on on a Facebook page and somebody has 586 friends. They probably don't even know 586 people, you know? So they're not 586. They're not 586 friends because friends is really the wrong word, right? Because how can you have? Yeah, they're not real friends. You don't have a connection. Yeah. uh, A young friend of mine told me I need to go through my Facebook page and delete or defriend a lot of people because she says some of them are on there. I only met them once. They don't need to know what's going on with me. And she's pregnant with her second child and with my kids. So it's no business of theirs, you know? (laughs) But you're an adult, and so obviously you're very much aware of this and you, you know, set up your social media pages in a certain way. But high school kids and even middle school kids, I guess, who have 
who utilize social media and Facebook, they don't necessarily do this or know how to do it. So they need somewhat monitoring from parents. Yeah, I think that parents should monitor, and you know, there's ways of doing it. I had, um, you know, you can go through the history and stuff like that, even without setting up parenting controls. You know, if you want to trust them that way, you can still see what they're doing. I mean, most high school kids, I would be willing to bet, don't know how to go in to a site incognito where nothing is saved. Don't know how to do that. Correct. But they get more and more. I mean, it's. it's I mean, by the time kids get to, well, by, you know, by the time that, I think the kids are getting more and more sophisticated in terms of how they utilize social media. Don't you? But they're I mean, still using. You know, there's like three levels of the web: the surface, the deep, and the dark. All right. And so let's talk about the surface, the deep, and the dark. Let's take them one by one. So, what's the surface? What's the deep? And what's the dark? The surface is what most people are on, and the deep is. But you know, okay, so but well, let's cause, let's assume that we don't know what you're talking about. So, what is the surface? Give us an example. If most people are on the surface when it comes to social media, what does that mean? Well, all the different sites that they go to and how they Google and stuff like that. You know, most everybody uses Google for a search engine, and you know they find what they want there and. Um, you know, if they're, you know, there's few other, uh, you know, more secondary type search engines they might use. Now, when you, you go into the deep, people that are in the deep can find databases and things like that that aren't visible to the, um, to the normal public. You know, so the average person wouldn't even know that they exist. And then when you get into the dark, the dark is where, you know, there's a lot of crime and, you know, illegal activity. Yeah, I like examples. I, you know, I was. I want to go back to the deep because, okay, I, I understand the surface. You're saying like Google and Yahoo and just the, the the things that most anyone who's using the net who is trying to get information will use uh, to get information. But now the deep, that one level lower. What kind okay, of site? For, what kind of sites? For example, you can find uh, databases that store maybe old literature that very few people see, you know, and that a lot of times even college professors don't know they exist, but they're out there when they've been scanned in and they're available to see, to read, um, you know, different things like that, that in different government databases, stuff like that, people may be able to get into. Now, are these things that you have to hack into, I mean, or that they're just available and you have to just no, know how to... No, available through um, other search engines that a lot of people don't know exist. But then, of course, the Dart is, too, available through other search engines. <laughs> but usually you have, with the Dart, you have to buy a different operating system. And so is the Dart, does that have to do with pornography and stuff like that? It could, I mean, uh, but more related to, because you can get pornography on the surface, but right. if, you're, if you, um, you know, if people are into pornography to the point or um, sex trafficking, stuff like that, yeah, that would be on the dark. Would you say that, uh, Blair, that kids are becoming, uh, let's say high school kids are more sophisticated in terms of 
utilizing surface deep and dark, or they pretty much stick no, to the surface? No, they just abuse the surface. And, you know, sure, there can be the unusual kid that, you know, we see on the news that got into something, but usually they're affiliated with something else. Or, um, but, um, you know, like ISIS or whatever, um, you know, something else that they shouldn't be affiliated with. But the average kid just, you know, they just abuse the surface. I mean, they think that, oh, this is just they're talking to their friends. They're not talking to their friends. You know, they're talking to everybody. I've seen this, though, with older adults, too. Like, for instance, um, oh, I got two sister-in-laws, and one of them is having a conversation with the other one, and I just wanted to type in there, do we all have to know this? Have you heard of texting or picking, calling? You know? <laughs> But what, so you're saying older adults maybe are not aware as how, how visible they are on the net? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are. It doesn't matter what age. I mean, young kids, there's, you know, middle-aged adults, older people. I monitor my mother's uh, um, email account. She only uses, well, she used to have a laptop, but now she's in a nurse senior facility, and she... Um, has a Kindle and she gets on the internet that way, but mostly just to read her emails and go to Facebook. And she rarely types on anything on Facebook, but she's, and it's usually in response to something one of my siblings put on there. But um, she, uh, you know, she gets all these emails, you know, how people are trying to sell you something, click on this and stuff like that. So I go into her account from my home and I delete emails. So she never sees them. Well, I have another example when you're talking about older people. And I have a friend who's fairly elderly. And um, she's told me that she would never, you know, does not want to be on in social media. She doesn't want to be on Facebook. And she would never expose herself that way. But I know somebody, uh, a friend of hers, who, uh, a, a younger friend of hers, actually, who ha- um, has taken pictures of her and put her on her Facebook page. And this older person has no idea that it's there. Yeah, and I think that's wrong, too. A lot of people put people, um, pictures of people that, without their permission. I mean, I had a, um, my nephew's wife took, was taking some pictures at a family get-together, and she had me at an angle that wasn't too favorable. <laughs> I thought it made me look fat, right? And she put that on Facebook. And then she, you know, um, tagged everyone or, you know, so it, and then it went to my Facebook page and I told her, you know, I texted her right away and I said, you know, I did not give you permission to put my picture on Facebook and I'd appreciate it if you take it off. And there are other things so she did of right away, yeah, there are other examples, and I, just to add to, to what you're saying, where you have people who are taking photos of you maybe at a party or in a public situation and put the, pick, pick, put the photo up on Facebook, but it's out of context, and so really creates a story about you that may absolutely not be true um, because it's so out of context um, and, you know, the picture itself. And it's not, and so, I mean, that's another issue. Yeah. Or even like I went to a nephew's wedding and then there were pictures on there and, you know, everybody was named in the pictures and I was doing some wild dance with my nephew, you know, the girl. 
And then somebody posted that on Facebook, and I said, you know, I told my sister, I said, you know, it's a good thing you can tell it's at a wedding. Yeah, oh, that's the example <laughs> I'm talking about. It, right. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, yeah. people would be saying, oh, what do you do with that young kid? No. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's out of context. That's what I'm talking about. And, of course, if you're going through, I mean, there are lots of examples now. If you're going through a divorce, for instance, uh, a lot of that material, you know, I, you know, I think you know, lawyers can use it. Um, and, uh, you know, as examples that you were out or doing something with somebody that you shouldn't have been when actually you weren't, you were, you know, dancing with your nephew, you weren't dancing with your younger boyfriend, um, so there's really far-reaching consequences to all of this. Um, no. And very little ability to control it as far as I can see. Well, but then there are certain guidelines people should set up for themselves. Like, for instance, uh, I was in Florida with two sisters, and I told them that they were not allowed to post anything on Facebook until the last day. And then uh, they had to say that we had fun in Florida, not we're having fun in Florida. <laughs> yeah, well, did they listen to you? Yeah, they did. I'm older. They're scared of me. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you have some clout. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, well, all right. So let's get back to the book for a minute because um, this is a, an interesting story about this Kit Conan who becomes the social network killer. Um. Mm-hmm. So apparently in the book, the hero, the hero Conan, um, learns how, do you say, to target specific people using a special software that he has created? What, what did he do? How did he do this? Well, he's using a, a software that he's created in order to scrape specific information. And that's another thing. I mean, scraping software is available you know, to anybody that wants to buy it. <laughs> and then Scra- they what do you call it? Scraping software? Yeah. And scraping software is, you know, I mean, you get these emails, you know, that they have your information, they send you stuff. Well, how did they get that? Because they scraped it off of some site that you were on. And you can easily, you know, just... Most operating systems, you know, today you can scrape off of um, Facebook. You can scrape a picture off of Facebook, and then you can put it into Photoshop and manipulate it. That's and then very, repost it somewhere. Yeah, scraping software, that's very scary stuff because there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, no, but one thing to stop it is, of course, you have your... Um, you know, like Norton Security or other, you know, spam controls in your email and so that you don't get these and never click on things that, you know, people think, oh, well, this person went to Wells Fargo or something, so now they send you an email. You know, we need to, your uh, account has been compromised or something, click here to update your information. The bank never does that. They would send you an email saying, we have posted a message in your secure email, log into your account. (laughs) It would seem to me that there needs to be, as this gets more sophisticated and there are more sophisticated ways for, I'm calling them cyber bullies, or uh, to access 
you know, these ways of, of obviously um, tricking people and, uh, you know, we're talking about these scraping sites. I mean, are, are there courses or online kinds of things where they specifically lay out what you shouldn't do? I mean, simply, like, the, the kids should really have access to as well as uh, older people or people who may not be familiar with all of these terms or the ways in which that they can get, um, you know, be up on the net in ways that they don't want to be. I think a lot of people just don't realize that. And, yeah, there should be courses. I know I was teaching at a local community college and they had somebody come in and talk to, you know, they had the symposium where, you know, this person was talking about what they should not post on Facebook and social media um, because of what it does. And, you know, there's voice recognition software that we talk about in the book. And, um, the you know, those are voice recognition software is used. I mean, when you call the airlines to make sure if your, you know, plane is on schedule, you're using voice recognition software. If you call the airlines, what do you mean? And you're saying you want to know what Flight 44 is well, doing? Like I, for instance, I fly American a lot. So if I want to call American, there's a 800 number, and you can check on your flight, and you can just say, and through your Bluetooth in your car or whatever, too, you know, you can just say, okay, you want to check on this flight, whatever. And, you know, it recognizes your voice. And I know that in the past, the same the same voice recognition software like that wasn't as sophisticated as it is today because if you had a frog in your throat, so to speak, or, you know, you're a little horse, it wouldn't recognize your voice. Mm-hmm. And well, now it does. It seems like they're better. They do recognize that there's, you know, it's, it's just more information that you're given to. Yeah, more information. I'm never calling again to... <laughs> no one's going to... Well, they're going to... They hear the sound of my voice. I'm on the radio all the time, but... Um, we have to say goodbye. I want to just mention your book again, Lore to Death, the Social Media Serial Killer. Uh, and uh, Blair London is the author. You can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Um, what website should we go to quickly before we say goodbye? Um, theawesomeauthors.com. Theawesomeauthors.com. Thanks so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. Great to have you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.